We were delighted that so many of you actually could join us today to engage with a fabulous array of theorists and practitioners of the book to converse about this versatile and long-lived technology. Before beginning this symposium, Unbound, Speculations on the Future of the Book, we wanted to give you a brief overview of the event. Um, and uh, for those of you who just arrived, we'd also like to share a sense of our shape for the upcoming afternoon and give you some logistical information. First, we want to express our thanks for the support of these organizations who helped to make this event possible. It couldn't have happened without the generous sponsorship of many departments and programs, including the Mellon Foundation, MIT's School of Humanities, Arts, and Social Sciences, the MIT Communications Forum, the Visiting Artists Program, the Program in Writing and Humanistic Studies, Department of Literature, Comparative Media Studies, Hyper Studio, Council for the Arts, and the Angus N. McDonald Fund. We are extremely grateful to each of these department heads and to the Dean of Shass, Deborah Fitzgerald. Brad Sewell has been instrumental wherever he is in the room in helping us to execute many of the logistical arrangements, and we can't thank him enough, along with valued administrative support from Magdalena Reeb and Shanika Spencer. We're also very grateful to all of the panelists who have traveled here to be with us today. As you know, the symposium hopes to explore the future potential of the book by engaging a range of users, makers, thinkers, and dreamers of this versatile technology to ask some key questions. Is the book an artifact on its deathbed or a mutable medium transitioning into future forms? What shape will books of the future take? We view this event as participatory and we anticipate a lively discussion ahead. The symposium began last night with a kickoff reading by Canadian experimental poet Christian Book, who, among other poetic acrobatics, has worked for the past decade to engineer an unkillable bacterium uh, so that it becomes not only a durable archive for storing a poem, but a poet itself composing a poem in response, a poem that he hopes will outlast terrestrial civilization. <laughs> the project, the Xenotext, intrigues Gretchen and I for the way that it addresses questions of portability, ephemerality, platform specificity, and ultimately bookishness. What would it mean to write a book in DNA, and who will read such a book, and how? This morning, the symposium continued in MIT's Institute Archives and Special Collections and in the Wunsch Conservation Lab, where Stephen Skews, Pat Olson, Nancy Schrock, and their kind colleagues led us through an array of rare books and manuscripts, ranging from a 14th century hand-illuminated book of hours to a complete run of Diderot's 18th century encyclopedia to miniature books so small that a library could veritably fit in the palm of a hand, and Volvelles and maneuverable book parts, among many other treasures, that invited us to see and handle the rich and ranging evolution of this technology. If you missed the open house but are interested in visiting the archives, please don't hesitate to contact the librarians who will welcome the chance to help you make arrangements to visit. Visitors also had a chance to see an exhibit of artist books in uh, the Roach Library's collections that was put together by a Masters of Architecture student, uh, Samuel Ray Jacobson. Um, it's called Bookish, Artist Books from the Collection of the Roach Library of Architecture and Planning. And if you would like to visit the exhibition, you'll find details on the last page of your schedule. 
Building on these opening events and grounded in this visually dynamic and haptic history of the book, we have arranged this afternoon's activities along a somewhat chronological arc with three panels. The first is unbinding the book, the second is reshaping the book, and the third is electronic literature and future books. Between those panels, coffee breaks and uh, in our outside atrium here, and the adjoining Cube Theater will feature an interactive showcase of creative projects that engage the future of narrative and storytelling. Uh, we hope that during those breaks, you'll look for the creators of these projects to talk with them about their work, and you'll use it as a chance to talk with one another. MIT prides itself on interdisciplinary collaboration and an ethos of open source initiatives. We hope that this symposium builds bridges in some way to each of you. Please go out of your way to introduce yourself to strangers, to the panelists, to other participants, and to us. Don't be bashful about approaching a stranger, sharing your name, and your stake in the book. As we witnessed over the course of the registration period, the symposium, symposium attendees and panelists reflect a fascinating and wide range of perspectives. We are delighted to welcome writers, scholars, book artists, publishers, editors, conservators, programmers, librarians, designers, curators, students from around Boston and beyond, even as far as Germany. We received an outpouring of interest by a number of people who couldn't actually make it here today because of either time or distance. We will be recording today's panels, and they will be available on our website, futurebook.mit.edu, in the coming week or so. If you don't see them in a timely fashion, feel free to get in touch with either Gretchen or I. Um, in addition, we want to thank those of you who helped to begin today's conversation by posting uh, blog posts to the website. We have had some lively activity there from a range of individuals, and thank you to each of you for your contribution to that conversation. We hope it will continue after this symposium, and if you're interested in contributing to the blog, get in touch with either of us. Our contact information is on there. We'd also welcome any photographs or commentary uh, kind of post-mortem on this event. No pun intended. <laughs> a final note before we begin. The panels are structured less traditionally with shorter presentations to allow for active audience participation during each accompanying Q&A session. We encourage you to share your questions about the book. Microphones are set up on both side aisles. Please come to the briefest microphone to ask your excuse me, <laughs> the closest microphone to ask your question. We hope that you will share your name and a brief statement about your stake in the book to give, um, give us a sense of a range of the perspectives in the room and help you find others with similar interests during the breaks and the reception. If you're wedged within the rows, please raise your hand so the microphone can travel to you and please stand if possible. Additionally, we were overwhelmed by the scope of interest in this event. We had initially planned this as a small gathering for local scholars, practitioners, and artists interested in the future of books. And it's been such a, a, a wide-ranging group of people who wanted to come. We didn't want to close registration. So this is a room that accommodates 200 people, and we have 250 registrants. For that reason, the first three rows have been roped off so that those of you who registered in advance were guaranteed a seat. Um, but we can filter in and fill in these seats, and um, if you see that people are standing in the aisles, please do fill in toward the middle. We apologize for the smallness of the room, and we appreciate you bearing with us. And thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, welcome, welcome to Unbound Speculations on the Future of the Book.
So our first panel is unbinding the book. To unbind, to unwind, to wind back, the clock, the book, digitized, printed, scribed, hand by hand, page by page, stitch by stitch. To speak of the book unbound suggests its essence is somehow bound, that to understand its internal logic, a book can be picked apart like a clockmaker dissects a watch. By picking apart the book, this panel aims to explore what essential parts have made the book tick. Winding back the clock, many hands have traced and keep tracing variant histories of the book through boards and bindings, spines, title and copyright pages, chapters, indexes, colophons, and the rest. Early scrolls and pages metamorphose as web pages through which we scroll. The specter of clay tablets haunt our Kindles and nooks. From papyrus to pixel, scroll to screen, what essentially is, has been, and will be a book what parts have sloughed away like shed skins or mutated into new parts of this resilient, mutable medium. This morning, as mentioned, we started in MIT's archives and special collections and in the Wunsch Conservation Lab, where visitors tangibly handled the history of the book, an object that some people in this room might call an artifact, others an art, others a technology. This panel unbinds the book to re-examine its pages, margins, bindings, and other parts that have been saved or discarded, traced across history to see what and how and why these and other parts matter. Bonnie Mack will begin our conversation with her talk, Entanglements of the Page, in which she draws upon her research on medieval manuscripts from her new book, How the Page Matters, to explore the role of the page in the production and transmission of knowledge. Bonnie is an assistant professor at the University of Illinois with appointments in the Graduate School of Library and Information Science and the Program in Medieval Studies. She recently co-curated an exhibit interrogating scholarly practices of the 21st century entitled A Cabinet of Curiosity, The Library's Dead Time, and is working on a new book project entitled Implications of a Digital Revolution. With this sense of the stature of the page, we move to James Reed Cunningham to learn about the long and happy life of a book. Jim is a bench-trained bookbinder and book artist who has taught conservation, served as the president of the Guild of Book Workers, received the Distinguished Alumni Award from the North Bennett Street School, and currently serves as associate director for digital programs and preservation at the Boston Athenaeum. Jim will discuss the history of the Codex and why books didn't die out long ago, while also examining the origins of contemporary book art, using some of his own books to describe the book as an artwork rather than a mere carrier of information. Returning to the page, but moving into its margins, Wynn Kelly discusses leaving an open margin, the example of Herman Melville, considering the margin as a creative space for writers, critics, and artists. Wynn has taught on MIT's literature faculty since 1985 and is a font of knowledge for all things Melvillian, publishing and editing books on this author while also working actively with the New Bedford Whaling Museum in projects related to the museum's concerns, not to mention her activities in digital humanities and electronic scholarly annotation. Finally, before opening up the conversation to Q&A, Mary Fuller will discuss where the old things are, the books we forget. Mary is a scholar and professor at MIT, working not only with old texts, but increasingly with old and rare printed objects like annotated books, maps, and globes. 
Her books include Voyages in Print, English Travel to America, and Remembering the Early Modern Voyage, English Narratives in the Age of European Expansion. In this talk, she engages another kind of old book, the books that are uncatalogued in storage, queued for discard in MIT's storage annex, and think about the dynamics of forgetting books and collections, as well as the work of returning them to memory. Without further ado, I'd like to invite Bonnie Mack to the podium. So I'm actually going to take the first minute of my 15 minutes to thank Gretchen and Amaranth for organizing this wonderful event that brings together such a diverse range of scholars and practitioners um, around a shared curiosity about the future, the history and the future of the book. Um, it's a great turnout and I uh, look forward to the lively discussion that surely will ensue. So let's give a round of applause to Gretchen and Amaranth. <laughs> Okay, so as today's first speaker, I feel the weight of my responsibility to uh, give a compelling presentation, as was our instructions. So I, I feel this responsibility keenly, um, and I hope both to lay some groundwork and offer some provocation for our speculations on the future of the book. As Gretchen mentioned, I am a medieval historian and have been working on the page as a space of communication, thinking about it as an interface that has been with us for over two millennia. My interest in the page was born out of a suspicion that its physical configuration, so often overlooked in examinations of text or image, is dynamically linked with um, and entangled in our practices of reading. I would later discover that this work would bring me into continued conflict with 21st century discussions that often frame the digitization of books as a liberation of knowledge. In order to explore how the book was a first-hand witness to the effects of its own embodiment, I tracked a particular text composed in 1428, the Controversia de Nobilitate, through various iterations, you see some of them in the slide, in Latin, Italian, French, German, and English, from handwritten copies on parchment and paper, to printed editions also on parchment and paper, and digitally encoded versions of the same. What I found by looking across 600 years of history was that the designers of the page consciously developed visual, graphic identities for the text that responded to different audiences and the reading practices. For instance, the reading audience of the text in Latin was a humanist one, a learned community interested in the scholarship of antiquity. In addition to adopting classical tropes and themes in their compositions, the humanists graphically emphasized their relationship with the past on the page with a special style of handwriting reminiscent of ancient Roman epigraphy that has become known as the humanistic hand. Pages were thus constructed with verbal and visual references to classical sources, transmitting claims about the intellectual pedigree of the humanists as well as their social aspirations. Only a decade after the Controversia de Nobilitate was composed, it was translated into French. And here I show you uh, examples from two different manuscripts. 
As we see in the slide, the text is presented in a manner that is strikingly different from what we have seen before in its uh, iteration in the humanist tradition. The text in its French translation has been constructed to look like others that transmit medieval romance, a kind of literature that gained popularity in the French-speaking courts in the 12th and 13th centuries. These were usually tales of adventure, stories of chivalric knights and chaste ladies. The audience for such stories was a courtly elite one, an audience that read chiefly for leisure. Many of the romance manuscripts that have come down to us are deluxe, highly decorated with colorful miniatures, images, and gold illumination. Their pages were frequently made of parchment, such as the ones that we see in the slide in contrast to the humanist ones. The humanist ones, sorry. Um, so their pages are frequently made of parchment, even though the cheaper and serviceable alternative of paper had by this time already been introduced to the West. Parchment then was used as a way to convey difference and indicated wealth and prestige. Other markers of the Romance tradition included a visual aesthetic that depended on a specific style of handwriting, the letter forms of which may be differentiated by their compressed and angular aspect from the rounder shapes of the humanistic hands. You might be able to detect, detect some of that here. Looking across these two traditions of the Controversia, we see that even in the 15th century, designers had a very fluid understanding of text. Their strategic configuration of the page, using different material platforms, styles of handwriting or type, the layout of the text, the insertion of images or decorations, and so on, helped to market the book by identifying the controversia within a particular genre for readers and to also to associate a particular group of readers with a graphic identity. So what I mean here is something like it promotes the association, um, the assumption that humanists read and write books that look a certain way, and then this assumption um, determines the graphic identity of anything else to be published in that vein, and also provides recognized graphic tropes that can be appropriated for texts that might not otherwise have claims to such an alliance. Perhaps caught up in the heady rhetoric about the print and digital revolutions, I was surprised to discover that the most obvious distinctions across these pages did not seem to correspond with differences in technology, but instead with differences in reading practices. So here I show you um, a manuscript on parchment of the French translation, and uh, on the right, a printed version also on parchment. And here, um, the Latin edition, a Latin edition, manuscript on paper on the left and printed on paper on the right. So again, you can see the, the visual similarities are really striking here. And here in the English translation, William Caxton's edition in 1481 on the left um, and a digitally encoded version um, via microfilm uh, published perhaps around 2003 by uh, Early English Books Online, a database which many of you will probably know. I did not detect significant ruptures in the material cultures of the book of the 15th and 21st centuries that would substantiate claims of a new age of, age of information or a more democratic engagement with knowledge. Rather, what I saw were significant continuities, indicating a longer tradition of play between materiality and meaning-making. That the archival evidence seemed to be at odds with prevailing notions about the history of the book surely had consequences for the production and circulation of knowledge, but how is such a thing to be studied? 
I decided to track the books of the Controversia into the library spaces of the online catalog and the stacks, both, in my view, important architectures that influence our activities of meaning-making, and perhaps nowhere more evident today than in the Bibliothèque Nationale de France in Paris, where the classification of knowledge is rendered in spatial terms. The most apparent classification is, what is the one that conceptually and geographically divides the handwritten books from their printed counterparts. So the manus manuscript versions of our text are preserved at one location in central Paris, which you see in the middle of the slide at uh, Richelieu, while the printed editions are stored some five kilometers away in the Bibliothèque François Mitterrand at site Portobiac. By using mode of production or technology as a supervening category, the BNF informs its readers that this is how materials should be classified, understood, and evaluated. So leaving aside the manuscripts, we find that the printed editions of the Controversia, ostensibly a discussion of nobility, has been assigned by librarians to such categories as literature, philosophy, ethics, natural law, and Catholic theology at this newest branch at the BNF. The ability of reader librarians to construe a broad range of meanings from the different editions demonstrates how creative and dynamic the process of textual transmission can be. But unlike the interpretations made by any other reader, these meanings are given institutional validation, enshrined in the catalog of the BNF. Furthermore, these particular meanings are codified in the building itself, which in turn sets the conditions for the future transmission of the text. Each of the four towers of the building at Tolbiac, two of which you see in the slide, represents a specific field of knowledge, law, science, history, and literature. And books are intended to be housed accordingly, and there are also reading rooms adjacent to these towers designated for scholars conducting research in those fields. Here you have a, see a slide of all four um, towers. So because of the intellectual division of the books of the controversia, readers may find themselves identifying with and bridging at least two or three even disciplinary fields. Cutting across the subject categories is the designation of rare books and their segregation in the rare books reserve in room Y, which I have circled here on the slide for you. In the reserve, these two different editions of the controversy are grouped together as rare. An edition in German on the left, printed on paper in 1478, and uh, Antoine Verard's 1497 copy, which you've seen already, of the French translation, printed on parchment, and dedicated to and destined for the King of France, Charles VIII. The materiality of these two editions engendered very different readings in the Middle Ages. Indeed, it is hardly likely that the books would have been used in the same way by the same audience in the 15th century. Yet assembled together in the reserve, they now attain a comparable status by their modern designation as rare and are presented to readers as equally special. In this example, we see that two different materialities that once elicited different readings can also elicit a similar one. So what to make of all of this now that we are to begin speculating on the future of the book? If we transport into new media our understanding that the page, however instantiated, is entangled in social practices, enabling communication by circumscribing a space and simultaneously constraining interpretation by suggesting ways in which its messages should be read, we can acknowledge that digital technologies also help to produce carefully designed pages, which encourage behaviors that may or may not be similar to conventional ones. 
For instance, the new Kyocera Echo phone and other such mobile devices seem to encourage brief interactions with ephemera. Their format is reminiscent of the wax tablet, which from as early as 1000 BC was considered ideal for composing and transmitting letters, emails perhaps, notes, school exercises, and drafts, because any markings on the surface could easily be smoothed over and revised. The tablet was designed to be portable too, and the faces could be folded in on themselves to protect the wax surfaces, and so too with the echo phone. Longer sustained engagements with text and image are their purview of a format that might now be called landscape or widescreen. Traditional scrolls used concurrently with the wax tablet through antiquity were generally oriented widthwise, encouraging, we think, uninterrupted stretches of reading. We see that its interface has also been translated into a 21st century context, here marketed for watching movies, also a kind of prolonged reading activity. Networked authorship also has a long tradition and may be detected in the ways that we continue to read, annotate, and share ideas about a common text with our peers. Despite the claims of newness that are embedded in the rhetoric of the digital revolution and the information age, echoes of the past resound loudly in the present. These are not merely superficial similarities, but evidence of a genealogy a long-standing relationship between our reading practices, our reading materials, and the meanings that we construe from them. With such a history in mind, we might approach digital technologies as yet another phase in communication, a product of what came before, entangled in what came before, rather than a replacement for it. We could then focus on mobilizing two millennia's worth of design towards enhancing, complementing, and augmenting the reader's experience. We might imagine foregrounding the advantages of different media simultaneously to generate a sense of wonder, here with multiple projections of the, here with multiple projections of the page that communi communicate the overlapping declarations of canonical text, marginalia, and commentary. Or foregrounding the connection between the physical and the virtual page, between the libraries of the 16th century and those of the 21st, to raise awareness about the enduring significance of the past upon the present. The challenge ahead is to envision reading and writing environments that can both do justice to our rich traditions and bear witness to the passage of time. Guided by this agenda, we are no longer attempting to overwrite the past with digital technologies, but are instead building a future that is cognizant of its own history. Such a future of the book may be one that accommodates a range of voices and facilitates diverse modes of communication. It may foreground the marginal and multiple. It may indulge in a broader sense of play. It may privilege our senses of touch and smell. In these experiments, and here is my provocation, we might discover that the future of the book is not necessarily tied to digital technologies, but indeed goes far beyond them. Thank you. So um, I also want to thank Amrith and um, Gretchen for putting together this conference and MIT for inviting me to speak to you. Gretchen suggested that I talk about my stake in the book, 
um, which I thought would be an opportunity to talk about what it is that makes books so fascinating and so engaging. I first became interested in bookbinding in the late 1970s through a desire to create artistic bindings. Um, I've worked at a, as a book and paper conservator for 30 years. I print my own limited editions. I create fine bindings, book art, and sculptural books. And in the last two years, I began overseeing the digitization of rare books at the Athenaeum. My background as a bookbinder predisposes me to see books as archaeological objects, evocative of the people and times behind their creation. I see books not solely as carriers of information or literature, but as aesthetic objects in their own right. The topic is the future of the book, although the real question is, why didn't books die out a long time ago? Conservators are historians, and historians generally talk about the future by talking about the past. Books weren't always books. In antiquity, books were written on rolls of papyrus. In late antiquity, papyrus rolls were replaced over several centuries by books in the form of a codex with individual pages of the book held together at the spine. In this image from the lid of a marble sarcophagus, a scholar consults a roll, but in the upper right-hand corner, there's a codex. The codex is the book as we all know it. The codex replaced the book in much the same way that digital media are replacing paper books. There are several reasons for the rise to technological dominance of the codex. Codex carries its text in a more compact format than a roll. It's a simple structure. It's easily understood by a user. It's made of materials that were generally available anywhere. And it's an articulated structure which allows easy searching. In other words, the codex is a simple and efficient technology. Early codex bindings featured folded papyrus or parchment sections and wooden or papyrus boards. The sections and boards were sewn one to the other. Because the leaves hinged at the spine, it was simple to flip through the book and find out what you were looking for. The changeover from the roll to the codex was the first major transition in book technology. The second major transition occurred during the late Middle Ages with the introduction of paper as a substrate for books and the invention of printing with movable type. It's important to note that changes in book technology are really nothing new. At first, printed books were a luxury product, but, after, but the five centuries after Gutenberg saw book publishing become a major industry as technological developments led to the faster production of books and to declining prices for books. Rising levels of literacy and education greatly expanded the market for books. By the end of the 19th century, virtually all Americans were functionally literate, and book prices had dropped to the point where any factory worker could afford to buy a book. When you think of it, it's actually quite remarkable that a technology created in late antiquity dominated human communications for almost 2,000 years. So now I'd like to consider how the book became an art object during the 20th century. Uh, contemporary 21st century book art really is the result of the confluence of four trends. First were the uh, luxurious livre d'artiste that were created in France in the early 20th century. These books were printed letterpress on handmade papers with illustrations by prominent contemporary painters. Livre d'artiste were often bound by master bookbinders in unique artistic bindings referred to as design bindings, in which the text or illustrations were a catalyst for the binders designed. These French binders were the first to integrate modern art styles such as cubism and surrealism into bookbinding, where previously art styles were applied to the exterior of a binding as mere decoration. The 1920s and 30s saw the integration of modern art styles beneath the surface design. The second influence on 21st century book art began during the 1960s when artists began to experiment with the book format and the interaction of art movements and traditional book structures 
resulted in the development of what, for want of a better term, are refers to as artists' books or book art. Uh, this is Ed Rushi's uh, Every Building on the Sunset Strip. This book is 25 feet long when extended entirely and features sequential photos taken with a camera mounted on the back of a truck driving down the Sunset Strip in Los Angeles. Um, because the term artist book can be confused with that literal translation of livre d'artiste, the French term, I prefer to use the term book art. There's another reason I don't use the term artist's book. It's because it, it suggests that there's an artist who created a book where what you really have is a book that is also a work of art. And that difference, from my point of view, isn't purely semantic. The third influence on contemporary bookmaking began in the 1960s and 70s when letterpress printing, papermaking, marbling, bookbinding, and other arts of the book all experienced revivals. This change was both economic and social and resulted from a new generation turning to craft work as both a career and a calling. The final influence on contemporary book art is the emergence of digital media and desktop publishing in the 1990s. These days, everyone with a computer and a printer is a publisher. Digital media have led to an explosion of innovative and evocative books in recent years. Uh, this book was actually created using a laser cutter controlled by a spreadsheet. Books have been illustrated since the invention of the codex, and contemporary art styles have always animated illustrated books. But since the 1970s, there's been a really dramatic change. This artist created both the content and the object. Here we see the change from the book as a reliquary, just as a container for text or information or literature, to, a book, to book art that is an integrated artistic creation of a single individual. That's an enormous change from historical precedent. Books were manufactured objects with contributions from an author, an illustrator, a printer, a binder. Historically, it was very rare for a single individual to create an entire book. So I see four uh, primary influences on contemporary book art. It's first the livre d'artiste and design bindings, the uh, discovery of the book format by artists, the revival of the crafts of bookmaking in the late 20th century, and digital media. I've long thought that my career parallels these developments in the arts of the book during the last few decades. So I thought I'd show you a few of my own books before returning to the future. I have to admit I never expected to be a conservator. I originally got into this out of an interest in doing design bindings, but of course it's as many of you know, it's impossible to earn a living doing design binding. Um, this particular book has boards that were fabricated from five layers of thin board to create a sculptural surface. It's almost topographical. The all-over geometric layering of the boards feels really wonderful in your hands. This is a book as a sensual object. This is the uh, first limited edition I did. It's entitled Dead Doors. It has fo loose photographic prints in a matchbox enclosure. I publish uh, one book every few years. They're usually printed inkjet on uh, photo or photographic or COSO papers. And the edition is relatively small, and each copy gets a unique binding. Uh, during a visit to Dublin in 2000, I took a series of photographs of doors on an abandoned warehouse on the waterfront. This complex of buildings had been built up over 100 years and was slowly abandoned in the post-war period. Because the building had been built over such a long time, the doors were all constructed differently. And as it was slowly abandoned over the years, each door was boarded up differently. Each door had become an abstract image, like a found collage. These, uh, my editions are, are printed using uh, pigment inks, which I think are generally considered archival, although they're sort of as archival as things get in the digital world. I'm fond of that saying that you know, digital documents last for forever or for five years. <laughs> Whichever comes first. 
Uh, this design binding uses a long stitch with punctured boards and has an alum toed goatskin covering. You know, books aren't just text, they're not just visual. Books should appeal to all of the senses. One of the reasons that I'm sort of attracted to leather and, and parchment and papyrus and gold and paper is that they look good and they feel good. I mentioned before that books are sensual objects. You know, a book should feel good when you're handling it. It should feel good in your hands. I think binders share a secret. It's that intoxicating physical pleasure of books. There's a strong current in contemporary book art of books created as three-dimensional sculptures meant less to be paged through than to be displayed in the round. It's one of those objects that makes certain people ask if it's a book or not. The impossibility of defining what is a book is actually one of the great attractions of a book. Books are such subtle assemblages of information and language and beauty that it really becomes impossible to describe what the attraction they create in us is. I'm not sure if it's a book or not, not that it really matters. So this book also demonstrates why it's impossible to show book art using a PowerPoint presentation. It's just not the same experience, you know, because much of the essential experience of objects like this is tactile. Sequencing, uh, sequencing of pages is also central to experiencing book art, and you only get a shadow of that experience looking at images on a screen. I've never found video useful for this purpose also. There's something about having people's hands in the picture that really interferes with your experience. And also that turning the pages software that you see on a lot of digital sites, I find that incredibly lame too. It just, it's not like a book at all. Um, book art may not be the future of the book, but it's certainly a future of the book. Now to the question of whether um, the book is a dead technology. Because digital technologies make it easier to create and manufacture books, there actually are more books printed every year despite all the talk of the decline of the paper text book. To a certain extent, there's a zero-sum game, though, between paper books and digital books. Only two years ago, the sales of e-books exceeded those of hardcover books. Just this year, the sales of e-books exceeded those of paperback books. It's pretty obvious that moving forward, the codex will not dominate cultural exchange and ed education in anything like the way it did in previous years. When thinking about the future of the book, it's clear that the days of the codex as the primary carrier of information is almost over. We should note the difference between books of historical or artistic value and books for general use. Books that merely carry data will die. Phone books are already dead. You know, there can't be anybody under the age of 50 actually using a phone book. Um, this book is available online in the Athenaeum's digital collections. It's Common Sense by Thomas Paine, one of the most influential books in our nation's history. The Athenaeum's copy belonged to George Washington, and he signed it on the title page. Digital programs at libraries and archives make historical materials more widely available by focusing on items with historic, artistic, or literary value. You know, when you take a copy of a Stephen King novel with you on vacation, you go to the beach with it, you pretty much know that it's going to be discarded or recycled. That's really just a book as an ephemeral consumer product. Having scanned Washington's copy of Common Sense, we're hardly likely to toss it in the recycling bin. And thinking about the future of the book, there are many parallels to other dead technologies. Daguerreotypes were invented in France in the late 1830s and were the first commercially successful form of photography. I always use this as an example. I just love this kid. You know, he's got this like, plaid outfit. He's just great. The uh, daguerreotype was a direct positive process with no negative. A thin sheet of copper was coated with silver and exposed to iodine fumes, after which it was exposed to light. Mercury vapor was used to develop the image, which is fixed in a salt solution and toned with gold chloride. A daguerreotype must be stored, framed under glass, because the surface is so fragile. 
It's a very complicated process and was replaced within a couple of decades by simpler technologies. The first online digital collection created at the Athenaeum was a collection of daguerreotypes. The Athenaeum was collecting daguerreotypes when they were new technology, acquiring our first one in 1853. Daguerreotypes are now dead technology, but the Athenaeum still actively acquires them, and we catalog them, we conserve them, we exhibit them, loan them, we digitize them. It almost doesn't matter if a specific media or format is dead or not. Even were paper books to cease entirely to be printed, we'd still collect rare books. Some technologies die out completely and some survive in reduced form, which I like to refer to as boutique technologies. The, the, um, the vinyl record album is a boutique technology. The paper codex will likely survive in some form, at least as a boutique technology. So I mentioned at the beginning of the talk that this was a chance to explore why anyone would create and conserve books in a world in which the paper codex is threatened with extinction. I may not uh, exactly agree with Michaud that books harass me, but I don't really seem to be able to not create books. I don't really know why I create these objects. For me, making books, is, it's, an, it's an automatic activity. It's unconscious, really. It's less an occupation than a way of life. I really think that changes in technology are not about technology. They're about people. As long as there are people who love books, and even though we don't really know exactly why, books will endure. When there are no longer people who love books, Books will die. It's that simple. Thank you. I'm a Mac person. <laughs> okay. Um, here's where our knowledge of marginalia may come from in the, in the modern age, a, a, a romantic version of it from Edgar Allan Poe talking about margins and pencilings. My title comes from uh, Melville's novella, Benito Sereno, and describes the anxious distance that the Yankee Captain Delano keeps from a dubious Spanish slave ship captain Benito Sereno. Delano says, in short, to the Spaniards' black letter text, it was best for a while to leave open margin. Black letter text, as all of my co-panelists know better than I do, is the medieval script, later font, used to condense large amounts of writing into the available space of the page. Herman Melville knew enough about medieval and Renaissance texts to appreciate not only their economical letter forms, but also their creative use of margins for illuminations, as well as annotations and finding aids. I would like to show you various margins in Melville's writing and reading in order to reflect on the margin as a creative and critical space within book history and, we hope, in the future of the book. Melville offers many ways to think about margins, namely by writing about them as geographical and creative spaces, by using marginalia in the texts of the books that he read and borrowed, 
by inspiring critics, biographers, fans, and artists who fill the open margins surrounding his work, and finally, by modeling a way to use digital forms of marginalia in teaching, as I will show you through an annotation project called Mixamize that I am developing with Kurt Fent in MIT's Digital Humanities Lab, the Hyperstudio. In his novels and poetry, Melville played with the multiple meanings of the margin, here as a line, as a place or a geographical location, as a space on the page, and also as a limit of a metaphysical condition or possibility. As these quotations suggest, Melville has a flexible sense of margins. When he speaks then in Benito Sereno of leaving an open margin, he may be thinking not of a fixed border between Captain Delano and Benito Sereno, but of a more variable space open to multiple configurations. Such a dynamic relation seems implied in this illustration to an anonymous article, not by Melville, that appeared in the same issue of Harper's New Monthly Magazine as a preview chapter of Moby Dick. This Peruvian cavalier seems to occupy a place that is not quite margin, not quite text, a vivid suggestion of what an open margin might look like. Melville was also a prolific writer of his own marginalia in a library many of whose books have been recovered. Walker Cowan's groundbreaking dissertation, Melville's Marginalia of 1965, inspired a digital archive, Melville's Marginalia Online, with a small but growing list of significant books. Here are Matthew Arnold's poems, uh, Captain Thomas Beale's Natural History of the Sperm Whale, the New Testament in Psalms, Hawthorne's Mosses from an Old Manse, and the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. A sample of Melville's Marginalia uh, shows a wide range of style, here is the humorously critical where he's um, observing an illustration of a whale and criticizing the drawing of the head, which is wretchedly crippled and dwarfed. Well, the tail. The head is okay. Uh, this one shows his sardonic side. He is quoting, he's observing a quotation um, from Matthew 8 uh, in which the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Melville writes, this is ironical. His copy of Hawthorne's Mosses from an Old Manse is filled with adulatory um, remarks. On the top there is exquisite, and under is what can be finer. <laughs> and this is just puzzling. It's a set of notes from the back page of the Mosses, uh, which clearly were inspired by Hawthorne's stories, but don't seem to mean much at all. Um, oops. The, um, the, oh, his marginalia has opened up a wide range of issues for scholars about his manuscript writings, uh, about his use of very idiosyncratic forms of markup, his X's and marginal lines and underlines, and the development of uh, his sense of audience and of himself as a critic and author that seems to emerge in the marginalia. Just as the margin provides a critical space for Melville's writing, Melville criticism has grown and flourished in an open margin around him. As member of the Melville Society Cultural Project, a committee of scholars affiliated with the New Bedford Whaling Museum, I have observed a particular set of margins, namely the critical space around Melville's books, especially in the second half of the 20th century. The Melville Society archive, dedicated in 2002, began with the private collections of Harrison Hayford and Merton M. Seals, Jr., towering figures from the great generation of Melville scholars, mid-20th mid century. 
Together they edited the text of Billy Budd, which you can see was a total mess. Uh, the 15 volume writings of, of Herman Melville and uh, Seeltz's volume, Melville's reading up there on the top, uh, was the first inventory of all the books he was known to have read. Because of the peculiar nature of these donors and their relationships to each other and to other scholars in the Melville Society, the archive includes a number of scholarly manuscripts, proofs and galleys, and annotated texts. These suggest a somewhat clubby, intimate world of scholars speaking largely to each other, especially in affectionate inscriptions that abound among the books. This, by the way, is Herschel Parker, who is the sort of the last member of that generation, the youngest, uh, writing to Harry Hayford to say that his paper was late, um, the first volume of his magisterial biography. Um, it is also a world of patient revising at every stage from manuscript to journal articles to book proofs and new editions that bespeaks the power of annotation as a critical practice. This is Seeltz's Melville's reading, which began as an article in the Harvard College Bulletin. He, he bound the pages and began cutting and pasting uh, with um, uh, print and then later handwritten uh, annotations that grew until he had a text, which was published in 1966. And then again in 1988, he was still revising, adding new information, new entries as he went. We have all that in the library. Reader response critics and scholars of the book tend to concentrate on the marginalia of authors or of general readers. In the marginalia of scholars, we find a distinctive subculture deeply interested in problems of reading and making books. Besides authors and critics, I am also interested in another work, another group working in Melville's margins, writers and artists who find ways to recreate Melville's characters and themes in a new idiom. George Clauba, for instance, who began life as a tattoo artist, has illustrated Moby Dick with strong fantasy elements giving characters the attributes of birds and borrowing from comic books and adventure stories. Writers like Sarah Jeter Nasland and Frederick Bush have appropriated Melville's characters and plots and remixed them in their own novels. In his Bone comic series, Jeff Smith has developed the character Phone Bone, a passionate fan of Moby Dick, and here he's insisting that the book does not put you to sleep. Fine artist Frank Stella has created a conference room at MIT. I, I think you have to have an appointment to see it. It's called Luhulu, and it's based on Melville's novel, Omu. He has also produced over 135 works in different media, one for each, at least one for each chapter of Moby Dick, from small prints to enormous sculptures and installations. Uh, there's a very fine book on, on that work by Robert K. Wallace. Just as interesting to me is the book work growing out of Melville's text, a few examples of which I can show you here. One is Claire Eluse's The Whiteness, a letterpress rendition of chapter 42 of Moby Dick, The Whiteness of the Whale. Her use of heavy white paper relieved by letters and ghostly impressions conveys Melville's representation of the, white, the whale's whiteness in that chapter. Even more shocking are the garish splashes of color in this mostly white text. Uh, and she's here illustrating the place where Melville talks about nature's paint. Uh, but you can also see the way that the, the text has disappeared here, and all we have is a margin, an open white space for the, for the picture. 
Tony de los Reyes has created Reyes has created a special edition of the opening chapter of Moby Dick called Loomings by burning out selected words and showing both the selected and rejected text on facing pages. The effect is spooky, as in Eluza's book, and also eerily poetic. De los Reyes has effectively eliminated the boundaries between text and margin, selecting words and arranging them in ways that suit his imagination. Matt Kish achieves exuberant effects by using each page of his Signet Classics edition as a canvas on which to inscribe his own vision of Moby Dick. The images are shocking, serene, funny, and haunting by turns. Unlike Aluza's and De Los Reyes's fine art books, his is a mass market production that started as a daily blog, a picture a day, and was purchased by or published by Tin House Books, an imprint of Bloomsbury Press. Drawing on themes and techniques found in scrapbooking, collage, and fan fiction, he literally covers Melville's text with his own images, making the margin an accidental feature of his artistic work. Looking for ways to engage my students creatively in their writing, I have been working in my classes this past year with a digital online tool called Mixamize. It grows out of other annotation experiments I have worked on in the past, uh, the one on the upper left is a static um, multimedia archive for a chapter from Obi Dick called Midnight Foxhole. The one on the lower left is an interactive archive that provides a workspace for students to comment on images that relate to the text they're reading. This one has to do with Toni Morrison's jazz. And the one on the far right is a very low-tech version of annotation, which we um, experimented with in a project uh, on teaching for students in K-12. I was also interested in providing students with a workspace where they could compare a text with its sources and adaptations, which I imagined looking something like this with the, the text in the center, that's the Frankenstein title page, the uh, sources on the left, uh, which include Milton's Paradise Lost and Prometheus, the story of Prometheus and this painting on the lower left, and then of course the very familiar adaptations. What we came up with uh, in the hyperstudio, Kurt Fent uh, was um, in, in, instrumental in this, allows students to annotate their course texts in ways that prepare them for their essays. So first, they might just engage with the text in very impressionistic ways and, and make their comments. Um, you can select the text, open an annotation box, and then write in your annotations. So what you're seeing here is the class's responses. Uh, and on the other, like, unlike other comment um, features, this one is social, and students can choose whether to make their comments private or public. So at this level, you're just you know, writing what your first impressions are. Then they can be um, deepening their reading to uh, develop something for a paper. Uh, with longer annotations that they actually often just cut and paste into their papers. And then in another assignment, by using source texts, um, as I had imagined in the first prototype, and research for intertextual readings and comparisons. So here they're, they're actually deciding which passages they're going to use in their paper, and they're talking about how that they will eventually write it. Although the tool is still very much in the early stages of its development, students seem to find it engaging and easy to use. You will see a display in the lobby during the coffee break where you can find out more about it. Looking ahead to the future of the book, I see tremendous potential in creative uses of the space books provide for work that is critical and creative, imaginative, and practical. Whether we read ancient manuscripts, 
print works or e-texts, books stand at the crossroads of culture, politics, and society. My last slide shows a slice of the tag cloud from a new site called Readers and Readerships, an encyclopedia of reading history by students in book and media studies at the University of Toronto. For this generation of readers, books are alive and flourishing at the heart, not the margins of their concerns. So, um, thanks for being here, and I want to thank uh, Gretchen and Amaranth and the sponsors of this event for making it happen. Um, we've been asked to talk about our stake in the book, and I'm going to take that literally by talking very briefly about what I do with books professionally as a frame for what I've been thinking about with respect to the book, both recently and locally. My own research is on the history of early modern exploration and travel writing. And because I'm a literary scholar rather than a historian, um, it's more specifically on the way that experiences like Drake circumnavigation or the settlement of Jamestown get formed into narratives and make their way into print. Some of my recent work has been about tracing the ways narratives like these get reshaped and re-understood through their physical instantiations as books. So for example, here is uh, one of two later editions of Walter Raleigh's account of a naval battle, originally printed in 1591. One produced as a cheap popular narrative for propaganda purposes. This is uh, for sixpence, very proper to be read by sea officers and British sailors. This other one, with illustrations by Howard Piley, um, has conceived the narrative as an aesthetically pleasing work of literary and visual art. So given these kinds of interests, and because I work in the Renaissance, I've clocked a lot of hours in rare book libraries looking at books like this one that are unique physical objects. This is a 1624 account of the colonist John Smith's experiences in Virginia. You'll see him being rescued by Pocahontas at the lower left-hand corner of this illustration. And you can also see that it was annotated by an early 17th century owner with various kinds of uh, finding aids. This is a list of the maps uh, in the volume on the inside of the original uh, cover. I've also gotten interested in the visual media that go along with geographical narratives. A few years ago, I wanted to write about this English globe from the 1590s, one of only two that survives from a very long print run. The archive where I was in residence had a related globe produced by the same engraver around 1600, and so uh, I was very fortunate. A crew of people took it out of its glass case in the treasure hall and let me climb around the globe taking close-up pictures. Increasingly, I wanted to share this kind of interest and experience with students so that they feel entitled to look at old books and perhaps also come to feel invested in them. Many of my classes include field trips to the rare book room at the Boston Public Library. Um, last fall's class wanted to see objects that would change their idea of what a book was. So here you can see some students looking at a late medieval genealogical scroll and here is a kind of blurry image of a book that also functions as a scientific instrument, um, not unlike the one uh, on exhibit uh, over in Building 14. 
So old books have been an increasingly central part of both my teaching and my research over the last 15 years. Not just books whose content is centuries old, but increasingly books whose paper and ink and binding are old themselves. But of course, what I've described to you is a very particular kind of experience with old books. The experience of objects that are privileged as valuable, rare, and meaningful. And often, as in the case of that globe, for instance, the experience of having privileged access to these objects. Pre-modern books are valuable and rare, but even they are also, in many ways, robust and durable objects. More recently and locally, I've been struck by the elusiveness of books and collections, their ability to disappear in place, to be collectively unnoticed, forgotten, and unfound. It's taken more than 20 years on the faculty at MIT for me to discover that my institution owns an archive of works in maritime history dating back to the 1500s, or that um, MIT owns some of the same books that I've been traveling across Cambridge or across the river or across the country to look at or to show my students. Um, for me, those particular rare books were so unfindable that effectively they didn't exist. And that kind of experience makes the value of an event like this one especially uh, very, very apparent. And again, I'm very grateful to Amaranth and Gretchen and also to the people from the libraries who are participating in this. So on the topic of invisible books, this is of course a moment when anyone involved with physical books wonders whether we're about to witness their actual disappearance, perhaps followed by a reappearance in virtual form. Libraries themselves will be and are being transformed as collections bump up against physical storage limits, as the ec economics of publishing and acquisition meet the fiscal constraints of institutional budgets, and as institutional space planners turn, to hard, turn a hard eye on the bounded spaces of a central campus. And these are things that I hear a lot about from the perspective of wearing my other hat as a faculty officer here. As I thought about this talk, what I kept coming back to was another collection of books here on campus, books that have already been deprivileged and fallen largely out of view for a faculty member like me. The way this came about was that Nick Monfred and I share an interest in physical media of various kinds, and it turns out that the library catalog isn't a great way to search for materials by, for instance, size or what they're made out of or how they were printed. So earlier this semester, our colleagues Patsy Baudouin and Mark Zarko from the Hayden Library made it possible for us to get into the library's storage annex stacks and look around for ourselves. As soon as I got there, I wanted to take pictures, both of the space itself um, and of the collections, and I wanted to write about it. The library storage annex is a capacious, even cavernous space, one that's not particularly designed to facilitate easy access. Some of it is visibly orderly. In other places, you see the work of ordering in process. And these are materials being shifted from Dewey Decimal Cataloging to Library of Congress. Another kind of ordering is also taking place. Right? So what kinds of books are in here? Many of them are mundane and often repetitive. Outdated German technical journals, departmental records, a weird journal of uh, local governance whose binding decayed onto my clothing. <laughs> Mimeographed information on water rates in Kansas, soil surveys. One set of folders held declassified documents relating to nuclear experiments at mid-century. 
Another cluster of envelopes, and there were quite a few of them, yielded only empty space. What was in here? Some things are rather miscellaneous. Um, Others may be on the shelf by accident. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that one's accidental. But what about this one? You know, I couldn't tell. So it's really sort of one of the, the delights of the archive, right, is that the sense, a sense of randomness. But among the repetitive and the odd, some things stand out to me from where I sit as having obvious value. For instance, this is a famous account of the great trigonometrical, trigonometrical survey of India fixing the position of Mount Everest, which was named after one of its directors. Um, I also found some of the original publications of the United States Exploring Expedition um, from circa 1856, and that's a book that I teach. Um, There's also a great run of the annual reports of the British Association for the Advancement of Science beginning in the 1830s. Something else that's come up in my teaching, volume one includes an essay on mineralogy by William Houle, who coined the term scientist, something of great interest to us here at MIT. So... It's important to know about books like those that may clearly have value for our research of teaching and teaching, but there are other kinds of value to be found here. Um, Here you see a series of um, climatological observations that might be useful for a longitudinal idea about environmental change. Um, I was attracted to these bundles, partly because they're tied with ribbon, the fascination with the material object, but their records of the New England and Newfoundland fisheries relate to my research on uh, fisheries history and uh, reasons for exploring this part of the world to begin with, as well as, of course, our current situation of a collapsing or closed industry. Many other materials in this collection document practices of crowdsourcing data collection, of accumulating, organizing, and distributing information. This is a theme that's all over the collection, from the great run of British Association for the Advancement of Science annual reports to those mimeos about the water rates in Kansas. In many ways, um, these books seem to have, some of them anyway, to have already been discarded. They don't appear in Barton, MIT's online catalog. They aren't on open stacks in a campus library. They aren't being physically conserved. This is a library of virtually lost books, many on the horizon of material loss and many on the horizon of inaccessibility as information. In the case of one incredibly interesting serial, Barton lists only a short list of digitized copies. The library actually owns a much longer run of them, which is not cataloged, Um, And in this case, I picked a volume from 1772. It actually starts in around 1760 at random um, and opened it. And it offers contemporary perspectives on the age of revolution, something that would surely be of interest to many of our students and faculty. What can these books do for us? And what can we do for them? It's an interesting moment to pose these questions. Residential education itself appears poised on the brink of an epochal transformation, or at least that's what I've taken away from developments this year and even this week. None of us knows yet quite what that will look like or what, it, what will be enabled or disabled here on MIT's physical campus and others like it. It's precisely because we don't know how that transformation will play out that I think it's worth reflecting on things like forgotten books and collections. I've suggested that much of this particular collection has value in some well-understood ways, whether as data sets or as rare books, but those are not the only reasons to think about it. 
A student said to me the other day, as he was reading a digital text of Paradise Lost on his laptop, that he didn't much care for material objects like paper books. I was curious then when in the same appointment he pulled out a paper notebook and rested it on top of his laptop to write notes on our conversation. When I asked him why he was doing that, he was full of alert ideas about the peculiar affordances of something like a paper notebook for capturing thoughts on the fly, for relating them spatially in a nonlinear fashion, and for absorbing the static of distraction in the work of writing an elaborate hand. This is a simple story from an early moment in a transformation that has barely begun. But simply put, I think our future students will want material books but probably not for the same reasons we do. I think they will have reasons that we can't yet imagine. That leads me to the second reason why I believe we should be thinking about something like the library storage annex. Campuses are always in the process of slow or fast transformation as buildings age and new needs emerge. Here in Cambridge, the emergence of edX, the new partnership for online education between MIT and Harvard, will doubtless inflect the current process of physical transformation already under MIT, under the rubric of MIT 2030. As we rethink the residential campus, we need to think about not only the uses of co-presence for teachers and learners, but also the affordances of physical spaces and physical objects. What spaces need to exist for books and other media objects and for the people who want to use them? How will those spaces be structured conceptually and physically so that we can find what needs to be found and who needs to be found? What are the costs of hanging on to the objects and information that matter? And how do we decide which ones they are? These are all complex, interesting, and consequential questions, the kinds of questions around which we might well structure research and learning experiences for our students. I imagine involving students with the libraries in ways that, as Joanna Drucker was saying here a couple of weeks ago, would develop not only literacy, but fluency in creating, describing, organizing, and navigating textual objects and collections of objects. We need to draw on the resources of their energy, imagination, and skills. We have to be involved as faculty members, and our students should also be involved in imagining, along with library professionals, in imagining what the library here will become. Faculty, students, and librarians um, should collaborate um, on imagining this library. A collection like the Library Storage Annex has the potential to be not just the canary in the mine for the book's disappearance, but a testbed for reimagining the physical architectures of information on the residential campus of the future. Thank you. Thank you so much to each of our speakers for those wonderful, um, provocative um, presentations. We will now welcome questions. Again, a reminder to come up to the mic if you possibly can. If, if you can come up to the mic on the side aisle, that would be great. And if you could mention your name and briefly your stake in the book. Oh, my name is Ron Newman. I'm an alumnus here and I read books. Uh, <laughs> my, my question was for the last speaker. Um, I'm curious whether the, I didn't realize we had so much uncatalogued material in the MIT libraries. I'm wondering, did the material become uncatalogued in the process of transition from a paper card catalog to Barton, or was it uncatalogued even before Barton existed? I think that 
that question could probably be better answered by some of my colleagues who are actually from the libraries. I see some of them here, and I wonder if they'd like to speak to that. Um, I, I was thinking about that in the context of what Nicholson Baker was writing about what we what we lost when we got rid of the, of the paper card catalog, and whether what what you just saw was an example of that. Right. I mean, it's some, that's something a phenomenon that I run across all the time. But does somebody want to speak to that? The vast majority of what is in that structure um, was in the old paper. Can you speak okay, the vast majority of the books in the structure that Mary was in uh, were in the paper catalog. And right now what there is is a microfiche edition of that catalog. So those books are findable if you actually consult the microfiche collection. And you are Marlene Manoff. I'm Marlene Manoff, and I work for the MIT Library. Thank you. This whole issue sort of speaks to how much stuff there is in the world. You know, if you work in an institution, you realize how many things people have created over the years. And I think a lot of times for institutions or libraries, they're looking to they acquire something right now because they think now is the only time I can get it. And they worry about cataloging and access long after you get it. And so I, would, I don't think that MIT is particularly unique in having a building full of stuff they don't exactly know what to do with. Um, it's, it's, just, it's, a, it's a chronic problem in almost all institutions. Also, I uh, thought I would mention about Nicholson Baker. This is a guy who seriously doesn't know what he's talking about in a lot of, <laughs> a lot of ways. Hopefully he's not present in the audience. Um, when he was talking about the decline of card catalogs and the paper catalog, every library has what's called a shelf list that has all of the information about their holdings. What most libraries discarded was a public catalog that simply had duplicate cards in it of what's in that original shelf list. Virtually no library gets rid of its shelf list. They might get rid of that uh, the card catalog, but that's just a public collection of duplicate cards. So that's my rant on, on that. Uh, I'm Susan Rady Klein. I'm the uh, Acquisitions and Collections Librarian at UMass Dartmouth. Um, I have a rare book business, and um, I'm a writer. So I have a lot of uh, perspectives. But I was particularly interested. This is a question for uh, Professor Mack. Um, I was very interested in the, um, in the French romantic analogy that you indicated one of the um, iterations uh, of the text. And I was wondering if in the course of that um, you noticed any um, analogies between the text and tapestry and women's embroidery. Um, and if that was something that also, um, as we move forward, looking at the relationship of material culture and illustration and text uh, was something that might have piqued your interest. Wow, thanks for that. Um, so let me just uh, quickly do a correction here. So it's, it's more properly called the romance tradition, not romantic. Romance meaning from the vernacular of French. Um, and I think I, I had imagined that a lot of the, um, the decoration does look tapestry-like, and it does have this, this very rich um, 
sense. And, and I would assume that there is a relationship, I think, between that kind of decoration and uh, contemporary tapestry work, but I haven't actually um, sort of followed up on that. Um, what you'll see in um, manuscripts from that era, 15th century um, northern, um, sort of uh, produced in Paris and, and the Low Countries, is that you actually see... It's, Surprisingly common. So, I mean, it looks it looks amazing on screen, but actually, um, if you look at a lot of 15th century manuscripts from that era, uh, area, it's actually it's, it's not that exciting. <laughs> so there's a lot of it. Um, so, um, so I think, but I, I mean, what you're getting at is sort of the role of women's work. Maybe is that kind of yeah, yeah. I um, I actually I haven't really followed up on that, but that's actually a, a great thought. Thanks. And if you're wedged in, we can pass the microphone to you. So just wave your hand. There's someone in the back. Hi, um, I'm Robin Sanford. I'm a catalog librarian at the University of New England in Portland, Maine, also Bedford, Maine. Um, and I have to say, you know, I'm a, I'm a cataloger and I love books and a lot of you spoke to all of the issues that we're currently having at our library and as well as all libraries. But um, I'm intrigued with the concept of the, the slides about the storage space of the library. And, you know, we too have, I'm in, I'm in the regular cataloging day, I do new materials, but I also do um, retro conversion of Dewey to LC because we switched when there was a merger. And I also have lots of books that aren't in our card that aren't in our online catalog but I saved the public catalog boxes when they got rid of the the catalog so that I could find the things when we had a record from hotel that wasn't exactly ours so we didn't have a call number so you know I have to use that as a finding aid in addition to our shelf list and all the formats that I use every day in my work to try to keep pace with the new materials coming in and the old materials that we want to make accessible. And we also have the, the um, problem with our diminishing resources, most of which are going towards electronic resources and the new ways that students learn and use um, um, PDAs and um, iPads and whatever. It's amazing to me. Um, so I, I really love that you all spoke to all of those issues. And, and I love what you said about you know, the book's not going anywhere. They just make more. And um, I don't know, it just gives me hope that what I do is valued and important and when it doesn't seem that way a lot of times. And um, I hope that um, the talks and the slides that you gave today will be available um, for us to look at later and to share with our colleagues because there was just so much to think about while you were talking and I appreciate all the hard work you do in making what we do so very important to the world at large. Thanks. I think we appreciate the things that you're doing and the kinds of problems that you're talking about. It's hurrah for librarians and archivists. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Allison Cooler. I'm a book conservator and bookbinder. I'm also doing research at the moment about the book as an object and how we're losing our art. 
it's hard to summarize quickly, but what I'm trying to do is help a layman understand that the book is more than a physical object, that it is a cultural artifact, um, it's a social artifact, it has many different components. And part of what I'm trying to sort out through that process is what the learning advantage is of having your hands on an object to seeing it on a screen. And I've been trying to do some research on the value of, of haptic experience, but I'm not getting very far. And I wondered if any of you in the room had any experience with that kind of a study and could uh, send me that direction. Is that clear? I can address one part of that, um, which is that in my, my research on the um, online or the digital uh, annotation tool, I'm constantly coming up against students who say, but I like to write in my book. And what we've discovered is that, that that's the first step. And they can begin to uh, annotate digitally after the initial one. And they're looking for a tool that will allow them to circle things, underline, draw arrows, write exclamation points, wow. Uh, and we don't have, we don't have the... the um, it's, yeah, yeah. It's hard to it's hard to develop something that flexible. So there's absolutely a need for the um, the direct experience with a pencil. I just would like to substantiate that in a formal study because I have so much anecdotal evidence. You know, it's it's all anecdotal. <laughs> Any, anyone who's taught anything knows that if you have something concrete or physical and you hand it to a student. They learn better than if they see a picture or they, they read about it or if somebody's standing up in the room talking. I do a lot of teaching of conservation, and I try to always teach with – they have to have a tool or a book or something in their hands the whole time. That The PowerPoint is not terribly useful for that kind of thing. And so I, I don't think you'll find anybody who teaches who doesn't know that. There just isn't a whole lot of proof. I think my, my particular sort of anecdotal – response to that is that a student of mine in brain and cognitive sciences was saying to me yesterday on this topic, yes, of course, there's lots of research about that. I think we're not the right group to tell you about it. <laughs> Unfortunately, maybe somebody else in the room, though, does now. Um, Ian Kahn, <clears throat> excuse me, Ian Kahn, Lux Mentis Booksellers. I'm an antiquarian book dealer who does a lot with modern fine press, modern artist books. And I really want to thank Allison for that question, which leads directly into um, my question and, and an item that is with Allison right now for some, some conservation work. I'm interested in how, as digitization broadens and deepens, we avoid losing content to the fact that so, the effect of becoming... Um, simulacrum, that, that, that you lose the, the, the nature, um, for instance, the book artist Ken Campbell, where a sheet of paper will go through a press as many as 20 times and actually has a, a textual, um, deep sculptural feel. There is no way you can look at an online image of Ken Campbell's 10 years in Uzbekistan and understand the work. You can't experience it correctly. I have a set of, of, of books with Allison right now for, for work. That's it, It's the OED, and you can get it online, and it's clean and simple, and you get your information from it. The set she has embodies the 40-year period, the 40-year life of the printing of the first 
the, the spine labels shift from Murray's Dictionary to Oxford Dictionary to Oxford English Dictionary, and the last 10 are in their original fascicles. You lose that when you're merely absorbing data being fed to you digitally. And how do we capture objects' place, a book's place in the universe, when it's merely zeros and ones being transferred? I think you have to remember that digitization is just a means to an end. It's just a matter of libraries making items more accessible, especially to people who can't physically get to that library. I think there are very few librarians who think that they're actually going to be replacing the books. I've had, I've had a few people mention to me that they're kind of worried that no one will want to come in and see anything anymore if everything's online. But we just scanned a collection of photographs by Bernice Abbott because there's going to be a show at MIT, and we have a small display of the photos at the Athenaeum. And this digital collection online is just great. It's spectacularly gorgeous. And then I went and actually looked at the originals, and boy, that online collection looks terrible by comparison. I mean, it's just... Uh, and so I think there's, a, um, there's always that hunger with people to have something that's real and physical and, and direct. Uh, maybe it's because I organize digitization programs. I'm not particularly afraid of them replacing the object or of losing anything because you still have the object. If it's a program where you're scanning something and you know, tossing it out, then that's quite different. Um, I'm Tara O'Brien. I am a librarian's daughter, so of course I'm also a book artist and a conservator by default. Um, my question actually comes to, Jim, what you've been talking about with the physical objects, and I think what a number of people have touched on, and my question is, has anybody thought very seriously about facsimiles? Is there a push for this? Has anybody... Does anybody find that anybody is coming to librarians and saying, okay, now it's so easy to reproduce, as you said, the self-publishing. Just print me out a copy of that book. I'll sew it together myself. Um, does anybody else find this um, sort of an interesting idea that we should be pushing for some of these rare books and manuscripts and one-of-a-kind items to be pre-produced as facsimile so that people can get a hold of these objects. And then, uh, Mary, you know, you're, the question from your student who said he can't relate to these objects but then had this notebook. So I would just be curious to anybody's opinions, if you've thought about this in depth, if you've not thought about this in depth, I would just really like to know what other people's thoughts on facsimiles are. Sort of got started on my research career working with a long run of facsimiles of early travel narratives. Nobody was able to give me a bibliography back then, and so I just went to the library and looked for red covers for the De Capo Teatro Morbis Terrarum facsimiles. Um, but you're you're thinking, I'm not sure about this. Mass consumption, you know, like that beautiful little bell in the library. I want to copy that. <laughs> you know, fine, print it out flat. I'll put it together. I can do that. Or a cookbook from 1865 that was some housewife's manual of how to cook, I don't know, pheasant that her husband taught. It has all this stuff on it. I'd love to have a copy of that. So you're thinking about... That's me, and I don't know if that's right. just me or <laughs> So you're thinking about sort of print-on-demand facsimiles of, of cool, rare books. I looked into that, and the problem with print-on-demand facsimiles is you are really constrained by size. I'm thinking facsimiles that are more respectful to the object in the size that it comes in. You know, that whole bell is an odd size. It's not going to come in a, a print-on-demand size. 
You know, this, this would be an excellent Kickstarter project. <laughs> because I, I don't think anybody's doing it. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Um, one of the things that I've noted with a lot of digitization projects, and this goes to um, the previous comment, I think, is that um, we're we're in this funny space in which we think we're trying to imitate the original object, but we know that we can't, and so we're, but we're kind of stuck in that model. Whereas, you know, what you propose, I think, really takes advantage of the possibilities of, you know, having a print-on-demand um, book that has Lavelle's. And that, I mean, in, in some sense, that's, it, 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 it almost offers a kind of emulation of the experience because a lot of the early printed um, books in that vein actually had had it printed such that the owner should cut out the pieces and assemble the Volvel themselves, right? So it's almost like a, not like a reenactment, but I mean, it's an, a re-performance in a 21st century context of, of what it was doing. So I, I really love that idea. Go ahead, do it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm uh, Richard Minsky. I'm a book artist, and I started the Center for Book Arts in 1974. Um, addressing the uh, uh, the question of um, uh, the uh, haptic and uh, non-textual content of books that's informed by the artifact, uh, there are a couple of uh, things. One, there's a link now on the website resources for this conference to the conference we had in the year 2001-2002 symposium called Text E. And it's, it's in the Internet Archive. And it's uh, text in the age of the Internet. There are a lot of papers, and some of them address this, along with two follow-up conferences from the Institute Nicot, if you're looking for scholarly resources, that are on art and cognition, which relate to the uh, way that we cognate. So uh, there, there's a quick way of finding those, and uh, you can follow that straight through. But uh, more than just um, anecdotal, I think, uh, we all have anecdotes, but, uh, so I'm going to give an anecdote. Uh, uh, and this is a woman who came to me who was a, with a cookbook uh, in 1973 uh, that she wanted me to rebind. And it was $50, which was a lot of money then. She could have bought a copy for five. But she had used this book for 50 years, and falling apart, and it was stained, but every one of those stains is a memory. So well, you, the important thing is that the information in a book is not just the text, but is actually, uh, it's like when you're dancing, uh, the times you remember is when you fall down. So uh, you remember the, what happened to the book. So the books are actually tangible records of events, number one. Number two, how many people in this room have never had the experience of getting vibes from an old book, particularly those who hold in Canabula early manuscripts, who has not picked up the vibes of the previous reader uh, from the book by one means or another, where you get transformed in your reading experience and understand the information differently because, for example, for me, it was holding the copy of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations that had been held by the Minister of Finance of France with his signature, changed my understanding of economics. So there's information that you get that is non-textual information that gets transmitted by the physical artifact that those brought up in an era of digital reading will never have. It's interesting to, to, to respond to that because in some ways... Um, maybe people who grow up in a digital era 
don't have that, I'm not totally convinced. I mean, one of the interesting things, I pointed out that there's been this big renaissance in all of the arts of the book. Um, if you go to the North Bennett Street School in Boston to the bookbinding program, the students are relatively young. Most of them are in their 20s or, or early 30s. And I think that there is a desire on the part of people for some kind of tangible thing to, to hold an object. It's not... Um, I think as the world gets more digital and, and things are more kind of fake and false, there's something actually quite comforting about an actual object. And so I'm not convinced that you're going to raise a generation who don't appreciate the objects. I think you're just raising a generation that has a harder time putting the phone down and looking at the object. Um, but that's a different, that's a different problem. Well, I, I guess I'm at this point I'm moved to say something in favor of digitization. Um, it's one of the things that I've noticed in in my teaching over the last ten or so years. I mean, you know, we could talk about scholarship and the way that an archive like Early English Books Online has absolutely democratized across the profession access to primary sources. You know, and I I read a dissertation a few years ago where a student was working on um, the text that I work on, Hacklet's Principal Navigations, which is you know sort of two thousand pages, and he could only uh, you know he his access to it was so mediated you know by editions. I mean, it was like reading it through a post slot. Um, being able to get the books that you need and to see them even in a poor quality copy is not to be sneezed at. Um, but more sort of interesting than that in a way is, uh, you know, I started to notice maybe about 10 years ago that um, my students, my introductory students who are not literature majors, were beginning to do archival research because on their own because they could find materials online. And this is the kind of thing that when I was in graduate school, you know, people would complain about being expected to do on their doctoral orals, right? But my freshmen who came here to do, you know, aero-astro or bioengineering or something like that were coming in to talk about a Whitman poem and saying, you know, I found these manuscript drafts and I think draft three was actually better. Let me show you the image. <laughs> so I'll just throw that into the hopper. Hello, my name is Wesley Foster. I'm a computer engineer. Uh, you made a statement that the uh, phone book is dead. When it's wrapped in enough plastic and it's nice and shiny and it shows up in electronic form, everyone will probably be carrying it. And as for your library, if you go by at night, you'll see the kids outside of the library holding up their notebook computers trying to desperately download stuff at midnight. <laughs> Don't think the library is going to go away. They may be looking for other stuff, but they'll be looking in the library for it. Yeah, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say libraries are going away, although I think... Phone books pretty much are. When it shows up in the right form, we'll be all be carrying it anyway. We have time for one more question, if anyone wants to pop up. Thank you. Hello. Uh, my name is Gary Frost. I'm a book conservator. There is another way to look at the binary discussion between uh, the affordances of print and screen books. And that way, I would offer, is to look exactly between them. And the take-home, uh, once you examine their intersection, their interplay, and their interdependence, the take-home is that the physical books are self-authenticating 
and the screen books are self-indexing. Now that is a very, very eerie circumstance. Each is fulfilling the other, and you could project that neither will flourish without the other. There, uh, what you hear, uh, advocates of uh, screen reading, what do you always hear when a person advocates print? Smell, uh, smell and uh, the feel of a book, those are euphemisms for a whole set of affordances. We talked about the haptics. The hands do prompt the mind. Uh, I won't go into the bylines here. What do you always hear from screen advocates? Always. The value of a good story, the disembodied text, as conveyed in a story. And so, again, if you think about it, it's a very, very eerie interrelationship. The hands prompting the mind and the mind prompting uh, the hands on the one side, but the, the two formats actually complementary, that neither will flourish without the other. Thank you. That actually brings us to the end of our session. Um, again, I want to thank the panelists.